as we get our Bibles out and open up to the book of Philippians, I just want to make note of all the baby noises this morning, and I want to celebrate it. There are a lot of churches this morning where you cannot hear the sound of a child at all. Sometimes that's because children are brought in and sort of shuttled off away from the life of the church, as if they're more of a nuisance than a blessing. And uh, in some churches, you don't hear the sound of children because there are none. And that's not good. So praise God for the children of Sixth Avenue. Amen. We're in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. I'll read aloud. You follow along with me in the word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Amen. So we have been praying the word and singing the word and reading the word this morning, and as we continue our time in, in God's word together in this sermon, I want to begin by telling you something that you can only believe by faith. What I want to tell you is that you are at this very moment sitting on the sovereign soil of heaven. I know, less spectacular than you thought it would be. These ratty, dirty pews, this blue carpet. And nevertheless, this is the soil of heaven. What do I mean by that? Well, the local church, which does not at all refer to this building but rather to us, the church, the gathering of of Christ's body on the earth, this local church is an outpost or an embassy of heaven on earth. Now, this room is populated by mixed company. Some of the people in this room this morning are foreigners in this land, on this soil. Some of you who are at church this morning are not citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And you can feel it. As we sing these songs, you're utterly uninterested. As we try to talk to our king in prayer, you, you, you don't really want to be having that conversation. As we read God's word and, and, and let him speak to us, let our king give us our directives, you're somewhere else. Because you don't really want to hear from the king. Because he's not your king. And then there are the Christians who are here this morning. And by the way, the ones that you think may be the Christians may not be the Christians. Such is life in the South. But if you are a true Christian, born-again Christian, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You were born into it by the Holy Spirit of God. And that that new birth came to you through the grace of Jesus Christ. And it's all unfolded according to the purposes and plans of God the Father. And for you as a citizen of heaven, when you enter 
into this sovereign soil, when you come into this land, when you gather with the church for all of its many flaws, you feel like you're home again. My daughter Isabella has dual citizenship. She was born in Peru, but to two parents who were U.S. citizens, and because we didn't forget to do the paperwork, she is a dual citizen. All Christians, like Isabella, possess a dual citizenship. We are citizens of some nation in this fallen world, but we are also citizens of heaven. It should go without saying, and yet it, it mustn't. Our citizenship in heaven is infinitely more valuable than our citizenship in this world. I mean, I could just go down the list. The kingdom of heaven is, and its glory is infinitely greater than the glory of any or every nation on this earth combined. The kingdom of heaven was purchased by blood more precious and more valuable than any blood that has ever been spilt by any country in any war that this world has ever known. And the kingdom of heaven has a charter or a constitution that is more wise and ethical and true than anything that's ever been produced by the mind of any earthly philosopher. And it promises greater freedoms than any political system that this world has ever known. And it demands infinitely greater loyalty than any ruler or nation has ever deserved. In this morning's text, Paul brings chapter 1 to a close by talking to us about our duty as citizens of heaven. You can see it right there at the beginning of verse 27. You tell me if you can see it. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you may be thinking, Sean, I don't see the word citizen anywhere in there. Well, true enough. Uh, the word that you see translated as manner of life, in the Greek, that's just one word, which is very difficult to pronounce, polytuestha. This is the Greek word from which we get our English word for politics, polytuestha, right? And this Greek word, it has a very specific meaning in the Greek. It means to live as a citizen, to live as a citizen. You can see this, by the way, Paul uses the same exact word in chapter 3, he says, but our polytuestha is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, Paul doesn't just randomly choose this word. He's being very intentional. Remember who he's writing to. The Philippians are a bunch of retired Roman citizens. They were in the military. The military is probably how they got their citizenship. Philippi is a Roman military colony. And, and so these people who are hearing these words from Paul, who are reading, they, their citizenship as Romans would have been very important to them. And so Paul writes to them using language that they'll understand. He goes, listen, it's true, you are Roman citizens, but above and beyond that, infinitely above and beyond that, you are citizens of heaven. Now what that means is you have to live like that's true. In the same way that you try to live up to all of the honorable standards of being a citizen of Rome, you must live up to all of the honorable standards of belonging to Jesus. Now, we should probably define our terms. 
right? Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. What is the gospel to which Paul is referring? Well, simply put, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a declaration, a joyous declaration, that the kingdom of God is not only at hand, but that it is also victorious. The king has defeated all of his enemies at the cross, putting them to public shame. He has displayed his power in the resurrection of his son Jesus, and he's going to come back again one day to finally and fully establish his perfectly righteous rule and reign. So Paul says, you know that message, you claim to believe that message, now I'm telling you, you have to live like that's true. So I've got one question for you this morning. It's the question that I'm going to repeat several times throughout uh, the sermon. But it's only one question based off of this. Here it is. Are you living as a citizen of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel? Uh, The word worthy here in verse 27, it means to convey the worth of something. And I want us to to do some flipping real quick because I want us to see the consistency of the way that this idea is applied throughout Scripture. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. Matthew chapter 3. You can just, you know, use your little tab there to save where you are in Philippians and go to Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now that in keeping with, in the Greek, it's the same word as worthy in Philippians. So, bear fruit that is worthy of repentance. So, what does that mean? It means that there is a kind of way you can live that demonstrates the validity of what you profess to be repentance. Do you see that? Okay. Now let's flip over to Matthew chapter 10. Look at verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So so Jesus says that if we love something, anything really, more than we love him, including our own lives, we are not demonstrating his true worth. Isn't that the logic here? Right? If you love that more than you love me... You don't deserve me because you're saying that I'm not worthy. Okay? Now let's turn to the book of Romans. Go to Romans 16. Romans chapter 16. We'll start in verse 2, but just so you know, Paul is talking about Phoebe, a servant of the church. And he says that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. So what Paul is saying here 
is that the saints of God, his chosen people, his children, they have a particular worth. And there's a way that you can receive Phoebe as a servant of the church that demonstrates her worth, which must also mean that there's a way that you can mistreat Phoebe in the way that you receive her that makes her seem like she's not worthy. Okay? Now, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. We're just slowly working our way back towards, Ephesians, uh, towards Philippians. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. We read this this morning. <clears throat> Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So now we see that for the Christian, there is a calling on our life that demonstrates something worthy and valuable. Well, what is that? Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Most of us probably felt very good about our Bible flipping so far. Easy to find the verses. 1 Thessalonians is always difficult to get to. Chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So here we see that the calling that we saw in Ephesians chapter 4 is the calling of God. So you need to live in such a way as to demonstrate the worth of God and His calling on your life. There's one more, but I think you get the point. If you want to look at it later, it's 3 John 5-8. through 8. It's in reference to the way you receive missionaries. You need to receive them in a, in a way that demonstrates their worth as missionaries. So, so why are we doing this, this sort of survey, this little mini Bible study at the beginning of our sermon? It's because I want us to see by actually looking that the Bible constantly, constantly calls us to examine our actions, to examine our entire lives, to see if we are really and truly communicating, demonstrating, displaying the value and worth of God in his gospel. This is a constant refrain for Christians. God's word, if you just read the New Testament this week, you just go through it and you read it in a week, you'll see that God is constantly calling you to examine your life to see if you're truly living up to the gospel. Okay, let's go back to this morning's text. Back to the book of Philippians. You'll see right at the very beginning of verse 27, verse 27 begins with the word only. Now, if you're in the NIV, it might say, whatever happens. If you're reading the NLT, it might say, above all. My personal translation is, no matter what, exclamation point. All communicating the same idea. What Paul is doing as he's sort of putting a bow on chapter 1, as he's wrapping chapter 1 up, he does so by way of emphasis. He's saying, I, I need you to lock in. I'm going to put a fine point on this for you. Here is what matters most. We must live lives worthy of the gospel. 
And so since that's Paul's main emphasis here, that's going to be my main emphasis. So the question again for the second time is, are we doing this? As citizens of Christ's kingdom, are we living in a manner that is worthy of the gospel? Now, I think there are three basic ways you can answer that question. You might say, you know, Sean, by God's grace, I think I am. I think I am. Well, praise God. You might also want to just be really honest and say, you know, Sean, I just, I got to tell you, I know I'm not. I know I'm not. And yet here you are. As if the Lord might be trying to lead you into repentance and to strengthen you so that you can say, yes, I am. And then there's the third way you might respond to a question like this. You might say, you know, Sean, I'm not sure. I don't really know what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel. What are the metrics? How can I measure my life against the gospel and see if those two things are lining up? Well, that's what the rest of this morning's sermon is going to be about. I have three points for you. Point number one is going to be fearless fighting. Fearless fighting. The first thing you can do to make sure you're living a life that is worthy of the gospel is to fight the fight of faith fearlessly. I'm going to break this down into two subpoints, note takers. Subpoint number one is actions, subpoint number two is attitudes. So, um, <clears throat> you guys know I, I know a lot about sports, right? Okay, so that wasn't funny. Uh, but I, I, was, I was trying to figure out, as I was thinking about our text this week, uh, in sports, what is more important, offense or defense? So after 20 minutes of Googling, right, uh, I've, I've come to the opinion that uh, the opinion among sports fans is that it's pretty evenly split, right? Like some people say it's all about offense. Some people say it's all about defense, uh, football people apparently think that football is all you win with offense, and basketball people think that you know you win basketball games with defense. Uh, everyone loses in soccer, so I didn't really check into that, you know. So now I'll tell you what I know from combat sports. Okay, a good offense can only be built on a foundation of good defense, right? In most combat sports, you have to be very defensively sound before you can really open up and let your offensive attacks fly, right? If you're not, off, if you're not defensively sound, you'll always be timid with your offense. It's only when you get to this place where you feel like you can't be hurt by your opponent that you really open up. You know, he can't take me down, he can't hit me, he can't submit me, and therefore I have confidence to move forward with my offensive attacks. Now, I was thinking about this this morning because the language that Paul employs, excuse me, during my sermon prep, is because the language that Paul employs in this morning's text is the language of warfare. And it's, it's, it's the language of offense in warfare and defense. So the standing firm language in verse 27, right? He says, I hope that I may hear of you standing firm. In one spirit. That is the language of defensive warfare. That's what you do when you resist the onslaught, when you make a tactical retreat. 
And then a little bit later, he uses the language of striving. He says, I, I hope that I hear that you're striving side by side. And that's the offensive language, right? That's what we do when we charge forward, we push on, we fight through. Now, again, remember the context. Remember Paul's audience, a bunch of retired military. It makes sense that he would use this battlefield imagery writing to the Philippians. But just so you know, you don't have to be, you know, like Robert or myself. You, you don't have to be a retired veteran in order to appreciate this because the fact of the matter is that we are all at war. Right? This is the way that the Bible talks about the Christian life. It's not the only way that the Bible talks about the Christian life, but it is one of the most frequent metaphors that Scripture employs when it talks about the Christian life. I'm just going to just run through some Scriptures, five real fast. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Ephesians chapter 6, put on the whole armor of God. You're at war, you need to dress like it. 1 Peter chapter 2, abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. 2 Timothy chapter 2, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 1, wage the good warfare. You see, to be a Christian is to be a soldier. To be a Christian is to be at war. Now, sometimes we assume a more offensive posture. Sometimes we assume a more defensive posture. But you shouldn't stretch this metaphor too far. What Paul really wants you to see here is that you're called to fight. And there's a way that you can fight that will say the gospel's not worthy. Conversely, there's a way that you can fight that demonstrates the worth of the gospel. And when it comes to fighting the right way, it's all about attitude. So that's the second point, the second sub-point, attitude. Now look, look at verse 28. Paul says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. So it seems like what God wants us to hear this morning is that in order to fight well, we have to be fearless. Isn't that what that says? Not frightened in anything. You have to be fearless in your fighting. Now we've already talked a lot about how to, how to find true Christian courage, right? Because this came up back when we were in verse 20. Do you remember? Go back and look at verse 20. Paul says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. So courage in verse 20, not frightened in anything in verse 28. It seems like God wants us to be brave in the gospel, right? If you remember in that sermon a few weeks ago, we said that there are two different solutions to the problem of cowardice that lives in all of us. One solution is to look inward, to try to conjure up courage from within. But God's solution is actually to look away from yourself and to look to the gospel, to look to like analyze what we believe to be true, namely that Jesus has already won. He went to the cross where he put sin and death and hell down forever. He was buried in the grave, but then he was resurrected from the grave as a vindication, as a demonstration of the fact that God has the victory. 
And so the Christian way to find true courage is to not to look in, but to look up. To not look at yourself, but to look at the cross, to look at the empty tomb, and to say, what, what do I have to be afraid of? Right? That's how you find courage. Most of us in this room uh, have never been in a fight, which is good, right? I'm not talking about like you and your brother wrestling on the bed over who gets the Nintendo controller, right? I mean like a knockdown, drag out, somebody could really get hurt here kind of fight. I, 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 before I became a Christian, I, got, I was in a bunch of fights, and I have to tell you, I was always afraid, always there were only a few times when I got into a fight where I wasn't afraid. One, where I was too high on drugs to really understand what was happening. And then two, when I was sober, when I, I just knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, I knew that I was going to win. I just wasn't afraid. So let's, let's do a little thought experiment. This is nice for a bunch of good, respectable church people. What if I told you that right after service, you would have to go out into the parking lot and get into a fight? I'm looking at you, Jim. I'll see you outside. Three o'clock at the flagpole. Now, what if I told you that you would have to go outside and get into a fight? And let's say that the person that you were going to have to fight was really tough and really mean and really skilled. But there's just no way around it. You have to do it. You have to go out there and fight that person. You might lose. You'll almost certainly get hurt. But that's just the way it is. How would you feel if you knew that that was what was waiting for you when service was over? Some of us in this room are probably already sweating, a little clammy at the idea of having to do something like that. Now let's make one minor adjustment. What if I told you that right after service you would have to go out into the parking lot and get into a fight and the person that you're going to have to fight is really tough and really mean and really skilled and there's no way around it. You have to go out there and you might get hurt. You're probably going to get hurt. But with one difference, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, maybe even because God told you that you were going to win that fight. How would you feel then? Probably still nervous, but it wouldn't be the same at all. Well, what if I told you that this is true of you right now? You see, friends, you are in a fight. You're in a fight for your life. You're in a fight for your soul. Your opponents, the world, the flesh, and the devil, are really tough and really mean and really skilled, and they've been fighting this fight a lot longer than you've been alive, and there's no way around it. You have to fight. And you are going to get hurt in this fight. You're not going to come out of this unscathed. It is promised to you. That's what Jesus says next week. It is promised to you not only that you believe, but that you suffer. You're going to get hurt in this fight. But you will win. Not because of anything in you, but because God has already won on your behalf. He's purchased your victory at the cross. And he has demonstrated his power in victory through the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. 
So when you read in verse 28, especially for those who are timid among us, when you read the words, not frightened in anything, that doesn't have to be a pipe dream for you. You don't have to read that and go, oh, that's talking about other people, all, all the brave people in the room. There are no brave people in the room. The only courage that any of us have when it comes time to face down Satan and the world and our flesh, the only courage we have is the courage that our dad is going to beat up all of our enemies and that he already has. So this can be yours. You may be afraid of sleeping in the house alone when your husband goes out of town. right? You may be afraid of germs. You may be afraid of a little hard work. But you never, ever have to be afraid of your opponents in the gospel. So fight the good fight of faith fearlessly. And when you do, you will demonstrate the true worth of the gospel. Point number two, unity. Uh, while it's true that some people do focus too much on, on group and corporate identity, I think it's also fair to say that modern Western Christians tend to commit the opposite error. We are too individualistic. We are too focused on our identity as individuals. We think of I, me, my, rather than we, us, our, right? You can even hear that in the way we pray. I mean, we'll be in corporate prayer. A group of us will be praying together, and people will just use personal language, I, me, my, rather than corporate language, we, us, our. And and this, this bent towards individualism, it doesn't just affect our prayer lives. It can affect everything about our spiritual lives, including the way we read our Bibles. So, for example... As we are thinking about this morning's text, most of it, most of us are probably thinking about what this means for us as individuals. And that's not wrong. At the end of the day, you have to think about how everything kind of applies to you. But this text is really not about us as individuals. It's really about us as a church. Go back and let's read verse 27 again with this corporate reality in mind. Paul says, only let your, and is that an individual or is that, a, is that a, a corporate your? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You can't strive side by side by yourself. You need another side, my side, your side, together. So Paul isn't speaking to you here as much as he's speaking to us, right? Our fearless fighting is a group project. Our standing is a collective effort. Our striving is a collective effort. Now this side-by-side language that Paul uses, it's just more military talk to these Philippians. It's a military metaphor. Now, when you think about warfare, you probably think in more modern terms. Maybe you think like men storming the beaches of Normandy, or maybe you think about tactical teams clearing houses and neighborhoods. But in the ancient world of the Bible, the world that Paul's writing in, much close quarters combat was fought in a formation called a phalanx. You ever heard of that before? 
In a phalanx, uh, it's a troop formation wherein all the foot soldiers, they line up. They stand side by side in columns, and they have their shield in front of them, and their shields overlap so that there's no break. And then they have their spears, long spears, 8-foot, 10-foot spears, that come out over the top of the shields, and that's how they attack. They march forward in lockstep, side by side. Now, it, it seems pretty obvious that this kind of tight tactical formation, it requires tremendous unit cohesion, right? Another word for unit cohesion is unity, right? In this kind of warfare, your ability to work together in the unit is way more important than your individual valor or your warrior spirit. So here's what Paul's getting at. He's telling the Philippians, this is how you have to fight in a tight, unified formation. Which means that God is telling us that this is how we have to fight in a tight, unified formation. Shield up, spear out. I could say a lot about this, but I'm just going to give you three subpoints. Subpoint number one, church membership. Church membership. I don't care. You can call it church membership. You can call it something else. The idea is that the Lord has created every local church to be its own little phalanx. When God saves us, he doesn't go, all right, I need one soldier over there and then a thousand yards over there from far away from that guy. I need another soldier and then another 150 yards over there. I need another soldier. You guys got your shields? good. No. When God saves people, he brings them together. Read the book of Acts. As soon as people get saved, what do they do? They gather into a church, right? Who are all these letters written to in the New Testament? They're written to churches. What the Lord does is he magnetizes our souls when he saves us. And pretty soon, if I'm around another Christian, I just get real tight with them. And then we have mutual love and accountability, that's what the local church is. But some Christians don't see the need for church membership. They don't want to be in the phalanx. They don't want to be connected to the formation. They have their sword and their spear and their shield, and they want to be adjacent to the formation. They think that being near the phalanx is just as good as being in the phalanx. But that's not how a phalanx works. You have to be side by side. You have to be lockstep. You have to be moving in unison. You may be saying, well, me and my family, we're kind of like our own little phalanx. And that's true. But that's not the way that the Bible talks about Christians when they get saved. They don't just huddle up in their own little families. They come together with their eternal spiritual family. Your family is connected to a bunch of other families in this formation. Some people like to say, you know, um, I don't need to formally commit to the, to the church. I'll just be there. You know, I'll be there on Sundays. I'll show up to stuff. Well, is that, is that really how you think this works, right? Like a, a soldier disconnected from his unit? I mean, just think about other relationships. Do you think it's sufficient for you to tell, like, your girlfriend, like, hey, I'm, I'm not going to marry you, but, like, I'm with you? No, there needs to be formal, deep 
loving commitment. That's what God calls us to in the church. Listen, at the end of the day, if you are not a part of God's phalanx, you're in danger. You're in danger. I know you probably feel big and strong and, you know, your sword and your your spear and your shield. But listen, you're not strong enough. You think, well, I've made it this far. Yeah, by God's grace. God says that you have a responsibility to serve the body. You have to join in, get side by side with your fellow saints and help them fight the good fight. And if you don't do that, not only are you not serving the church, but you're putting your own soul in serious danger. Subpoint number two, practicing unity. Oh, by the way, membership classes started this morning. You're welcome to come next week if you're interested. Subpoint number two, practicing unity. So in order for a phalanx or for any other kind of military unit to to move forward, everyone has to work together, right? They have to be of one mind. And that's what Paul says in verse 27. Look there again. Paul says, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, right? That's how you strive together side by side. You have one mind. Now, this is a problem. It's a problem for me as a pastor. I mean, have you ever just tried to get everyone in the car to agree on something? What do we want to do for dinner tonight? 30 minutes later, still arguing, right? It's hard enough to get everyone in a family to agree on something. How do you get everyone in a church to agree on something, right? We have 80-some members in our church, 80-something different minds, right, with different experiences and different emotions and different unique perspectives, none of which are in complete agreement. So how do we get to the place where we are of one mind? Well, the answer is right there in verse 27. Paul says we have to have one mind just as we have one spirit, right? So the idea here is that we all have different minds, but what brings us together to agree on Everything that's really important is that the spirit that's living in us gives us unity of mind. And I just want to show you that from one other place in Scripture. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. starting in verse 10. Paul says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Now, reveal is in reference to that which we know, right? How do we know what we know? Paul says we know it because God, through His Spirit, has revealed it to us. And then he explains how that works. He says, For the Spirit searches everything. Even the depths of God. Now that's a mysterious statement. We don't have time to unpack it this morning. Verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So 
Delisa has her mind. Tim has his mind. Greg has his mind. Will has his mind. Mike Cantrell has his mind. Mike Phillips has his mind. I have my mind. They're all different, right? But what we want is to all share in the mind of God. Isn't that what you think this means to have one mind? We want to think God's thoughts after him. Well, how do we do that? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the Spirit of God knows the mind of God. Now in verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. So here's his logic. The Spirit of God that searches the mind of God brings the knowledge that is in the mind of God down into our minds. So when the Spirit of God is working in Dan Fink's mind, in Luke Hill's mind, in my mind, to reveal the things of God, he's causing us to all have one mind. Do you see? It's not like he's tethering our minds together in some weird kind of like matrix, neo-philosophical thing. All he, the Spirit of God just gives each of us an understanding of what God wants, what he loves, what he hates. And then once we're all synced up with God, we're also synced up with one another. Subpoint number three. Unity is one of our greatest weapons. Unity is one of our greatest weapons. Um, a lot of heresy has been protected for the sake of so-called unity in the church. A lot of sin has been accommodated on behalf of pleas for unity in the body. When the reformers were trying to resuscitate the gospel 500 years ago in Europe, one of the biggest thing, one of the constant refrains that they heard from their opponents was, stop it, you're tearing apart the unity of the church. And the reformers were like, actually, no, it's only when we have unity in the gospel that we can have true unity. Right now, pastor and author, well, former pastor, current author, Rick Warren, is trying to lead the Southern Baptist Convention into severe biblical compromise. In his clarion call, his justification for leading Southern Baptists away from the truth of Scripture is, we have to be united. Oh, sure, the Bible, you know, you think the Bible says that, I think the Bible says this, but we Baptists got to stick together for the sake of unity. But unity in what? Our unity has to be unity in truth. Theological liberals in particular love to use the doctrine of Christian unity to try to eviscerate the gospel of any other doctrine that actually gives us our grounds for unity. Disregard penal substitutionary atonement. Disregard the divinity of Christ. Disregard miracles. Disregard the doctrine of hell. And when you say, that's wrong and it's dangerous, they go, quit breaking up our unity. I'm not breaking up unity. You're eviscerating the gospel, the only thing that gives us any sort of common ground for unity. Now, having said that, I don't want to be a prophet preaching at people that are not in this room, addressing problems that I don't think we're going to face in this place. So uh, let me tell you that my fear for our local church is not that we're going to throw our lot in with the Rick Warrens of the world or the theological liberals. 
My fear is that we are going to throw our lot in with the hyper-fundamentalists. And we're going to get to the place where we want to fight all the time, and we just throw unity to the curb. We throw unity to the wayside. Friends, we cannot do that. It is dangerous. God designed the church for us to work together in, yes, unity in truth, but also unity in love. And what can happen is we can hear our, our enemies saying the word unity so much that we begin to associate that word negatively, right? It's like the word justice. All the crazy social justice, critical theory, woke stuff has made it so that sometimes when I'm talking to my Christian friends, some even of my pastor buddies, and I go, you know, God's word says justice here, and they go, justice? Yes, justice. The Bible says it. We have to do it. In the same way, I don't want us to become the people who, when I say, hey, you know, for the sake of unity, you go, ugh, unity, what is he, a liberal? Friends, don't do that. Unity does not belong to liberals. Unity belongs to people who believe the Bible. And it's our most important weapon, right? Do you see this? As Paul is calling the Philippians to, to get together and to go out and do battle, he says, Guys, it is so important that as you go out there to fight this fight, you do it together. And our unity is not just for the sake of unity. It's not just so that we can feel good sticking together. It's so that we can win. Point number three, testimony. Shortest point. As we wrap up our time together here in point three, I just want to make one more quick observation from the text. Uh, your unified and fearless fighting, that's points one and two, is a testimony, a testimony to those who oppose the gospel. Your unified and fearless fighting is a testimony to those who oppose the gospel. Look at verse 28 again. Go back to Philippians chapter one, verse 28. He says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign, sign, testimony, same thing. This is a sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. So here's what Paul is saying. You have, you have one testimony. It's, you can break it down into two parts. We win, right? And by we, I don't mean Republicans, right? I don't mean even this local church or the people that we have denominational affiliations with. The we here is the church, right? We win, they lose. Who are the they? It's the opponents of the gospel. In order to see this, you really need to enter into this kingdom mentality, right? Just step out of your 21st century individualistic mind and step into this kingdom mentality. Imagine that there are two kingdoms at war. And you are fighting on the side of the righteous king who is putting down a rebellion in his kingdom. Right? And you, as a soldier in the king's army, you are out on the battlefield day and night. You're fighting for the glory of his name. You're trying to push back the forces of darkness. You're trying to lead people out of rebellion and into fellowship with the king once again. What Paul is saying here is that there is a way in which you can do all of that. That will be a sign to those that you're fighting on the battlefield that they've already lost. When your opponents see your strength, 
in your constancy in the power of the gospel, when they see your ability to strive and to stand firm in unity as soldiers in the army of Christ, when they see your commitment to the truth and love of the gospel as citizens of the kingdom, that will tell them something. And what it tells them is that Jesus wins. As we wrap up our, our time in God's word together, I was, um, I was struck this week by a quote um, from one of my favorite preachers. The quote goes like this. A good sermon is not like a club that beats upon the will, but like a sword that cuts to the heart. This sermon can feel like a club beating upon your will, right? That's the danger. A sermon about living a life truly worthy of God and his gospel, right? So let me just go ahead and just cut straight to the heart and just tell you, you can't do it. Sean, scripture never commands us to do things that we can't do. It does it all the time. Be perfect, even as your heavenly father is perfect. Be holy, even as I am holy. Let me know how that's going for you. Right? Live a life that's truly worthy of the gospel. Can't do it. The gospel is too holy, too true, too beautiful, too righteous. We are too sinful. And not only can we not live a life worthy of the gospel, we can't even live a life worthy of our own standards. Right? If I were to record your life, even for the rest of the day, I won't say a month, I won't say a week, I'll just say for the rest of the day, and then sit you down tomorrow and play your life back to you, do you think you would feel good about what you see? We don't even live up to our own moral code, much less the perfect law of love in the gospel. And this, friends, is why the gospel means so much to us. Because the gospel... It recognizes this. The gospel is very honest with us. The gospel says, we can't do it, and yet, here's the good news, Jesus can do it. Not only can he do it, he's already done it, right? We're in the lineage of Adam. Every good thing that Adam was supposed to do, he failed to do. But you know who else is in the lineage of Adam? Jesus. And every good thing that Adam failed to do, and every good thing that you and I failed to do, Jesus succeeded in every way. He kept every law. He loved. He didn't just keep the law. He loved the law. In every way, he did everything exactly right, which means what we need most today is not to feel motivated to go back out there and be like, all right, Jesus, I'm going to show you. I'm going to live a life worthy of the gospel. You're going to be really glad I'm on your team. What we need is to leave here brokenhearted, saying, I can't do it, and then praising, saying, but praise be to God, Christ is my righteousness. He is my everything. He's given me everything I need, and even when I'm disobedient, his obedience is credited to my account. He lived a life worthy of the gospel, and then he gave it up for us. So if you're sitting here this morning thinking, well, Sean, I, I just can't measure up. You're right. Not only are you right, but you actually are at a spiritual advantage. Because there are some people sitting here this morning who think that they can measure up. 
and they are in great and terrible spiritual danger. We're going to sing a hymn here in a moment, and we chose this hymn on purpose because I think it captures the reality of the gospel of God's grace. It reads like this. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. So God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him, and he alone can give me rest. No separation from the world, no work I do, no gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live. But Jesus died and rose again, and the power of death is overthrown. My God is merciful to me, and merciful in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father God, we rejoice to know that we have your righteous life credited to our account. And for anyone in this room who thinks that they are living a life truly worthy of the gospel, we pray that you will bring them to a knowledge of their sin and their ignorance and their rebellion, and that you will cause them to throw themselves on the mercy seat, that they would put themselves at the foot of the cross and trust in you alone for everything that they need. You are worthy, and we confess this together with one heart, one mind, because of the one spirit working in us. In his name we pray, and in the name of Jesus, and in the name of the Father. Amen. Amen.